Well, very happy to welcome everybody here today for this um, panel discussion on on Zen and marriage, and especially warm welcome to Hogan Sensei and Aho for for being here today and really enlivening our Zendo with your presence. So it's really it's really very much appreciated, and lovely to bring our two sanghas together as well. Um, so. As, as everybody knows, our, our topic is Zen and marriage. And I just thought I'd say a little bit about why, why we came up, why I came up with this particular topic. Is I noticed when I looked online to get some um, biographical material from, on, from you, Hogan, that you had um, started to practice in 1978 and then um, been at the mountains and rivers at the at Zen Mountain Monastery for about 12 years. and. Um, that was exactly the amount of time that Richard and I were there as well, and so it seemed like that there was a little little um, uh, coincidence there. Um, I guess you you practiced there up to 2007, and then and now living on a farm in Pennsylvania. So um, one of the one of the things that came to me with this is just just recognizing that. Um, in Zen in the West, um, very few people stay in a monastic environment for the whole of their lives. Most people come for periods of training, um, maybe quite long periods, like, like 12 years or 13 years, but most then return to life in, outside of the monastery. Um, my, my teacher is married, his teacher was married, uh, Philip Kaplow had a, had a daughter. Um, and in returning, in returning to household life, um, that means all the different kinds of family commitments. It can be um, marriage, um, children, um, looking after elderly parents, um, you know all all the things that go with with the household life, um, uh, earning a living, finding a way to to make ends meet in the world. So um, it seemed like it's a good topic for discussion. Um, but when we look at our um, literature, it's almost entirely about monks and their masters. Some some small. Um, exceptions to that, um, but our archetypes, the stories that our teaching comes out of, um, are, are, mainly, are mainly monks and masters. Women don't show up much at all in the, in the standard uh, texts. We do have now <coughs> this wonderful book called The Hidden Lamp, where we have um, many, many stories about women in Zen over the centuries, going all the way back to the time of the Buddha. Um, so that's that we have these stories now to draw on, but they're not part of our, um, our at least our traditions, uh, kokao and curriculum. Um, so uh, actually I feel that you, you can very much draw on the, the teachings that we have, um, very helpful uh, guides to um, living in relationship. And you could say that a lot of the 
of the koans, a lot of the Zen teaching is about relationship. It's about how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to people, other people, how we relate to the world. And so we can draw on it. And later, uh, I'd like to just bring up a couple of Zen's, classical Zen stories and, and look at them from the point of view of marriage. Um, but just to say a little bit about, about um, where, um, uh, where Richard and I came from in this journey, um, and what it, um, we met in 1978, so that was a <laughs> year that resonated with us. And um, we went, first went to uh, a workshop in 1982 in Sweden with Roshi Philip Kaplow. And at the end of that, at that um, two-day event, it was like a public talk um, um, and a sitting and a, and a shared meal, um, an all-day sitting uh, the day after the workshop. So a public talk, a workshop, and an all-day sitting. We approached Roshi Kaplow and said to him, will you marry us? And he said, yes, if you come to Rochester. It's <laughs> <laughs> good for me. And um, <coughs> up to, we'd been living together for four years, but up to that point, we hadn't feel, felt that marriage was a particularly meaningful thing. At that stage, in our early 20s, it felt like just something you did when you wanted to start collecting stuff, you know, when you wanted to become a full-fledged consumer. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, it, didn't, it wasn't something that crossed our minds, but when we, we had accounted Zen, um, suddenly here was a context in which we could get married that would be meaningful to us. And so four years later, in 1986, we went to this um, Rochester Zen Center for three-week training period. And during that training period, we got married. Roshi Kaplow did keep his promise, and, and he conducted our wedding ceremony, even though it was an incredibly busy time at the center. So marriage for, for us is, was very closely tied up with the, sort of the beginnings of our Zen training and our Zen practice. And that same weekend, we did a Jukai ceremony um, with, with, I guess, hundreds of people in the Buddha Hall there. We also witnessed um, an ordination of three people, two um, women and a man. Uh, and during that ceremony, I found myself weeping and suddenly realizing that I knew what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, which I hadn't up until that point. So that weekend, that weekend, in nine, uh, that three weeks in 19... 86 was really, really profound, and really our lives <coughs> changed dramatically from that point. And we started coming to the centre more and more, and ended up spending pretty much the 90s uh, up to 2003 living, living and training in Rochester. Um, as a married couple, it wasn't always easy. It was hard at the beginning, just sharing a room and not having much privacy from each other or from the other members of the community in order to be together alone. But later on, when we, when we had been going for a while, we were assigned a, a space with a two rooms. So we had our bedroom and a little kitchenette next to it that, that it meant that we could have private time together and also get away from each other into separate rooms because up to that point that really the only private place would have been the Zendo to go there. Of course, which was a good place to go. Um, but over time we got we were, had a little bit more sort of accommodation for being married and that was helpful. Um, one of the things that came up for me while I was on staff there was about having children because 
I was in my 30s, so my biological clock was kind of ticking. And um, at a certain point, I made the decision um, to not have children um, because I couldn't see a way of how I could continue my, my full-time training in a, in a different country from my country of origin and um, do justice to having children. And that was a hard decision. Uh, but something was said to me by um, Sonia, who is the sister of my teacher, Sonia Sensei now, or Roshi, um, and she said that always when you make a decision, there's grief about the route you don't take. And that was very helpful, just realizing I wasn't going to necessarily um, just be able to do this lightly and, and not have feelings about it, but I could choose the way that felt right for me going forward. So that was, that was a, and, and then looking back on it, I could say, yes, it was what I needed to do in this lifetime. Um, then in 2004, after, after that decade and a bit um, living in Rochester, we came back and we started the Zen Center here. And um, it was quite a, it was kind of hard transition at first, um, ha having struggled to have privacy when in training at the center. When after I left, of course, I struggled about about not having so much connection to people, um, not so much camaraderie. You know, um, so, that, but that's just you know that's just the nature of <laughs> human beings and impermanence. Um, at the beginning. The only people in our zendo uh, for a number of years who had had more than were more than beginners were Richard and me, and so really it would have been very hard if it just been me to provide any kind of context um, for people to come in and learn about about Zen training. We had um, Catherine Argetsinger come, uh, one of my students, and she came and really helped a lot in those years too. But she wasn't always here; she would be going back and forth to America. So. Um, we were very much um, sangha to each other um, in those early years. And that had been the case also when we first learned how to sit in 1982 and we came back to New Zealand. We were, were, were supported by each other in those early years when we were um, trying to develop a daily practice at home. And it, um, it made a huge difference. There was just one other person in the house who was also practicing and we could bring each other along. We could kind of uh, one of us might not be feeling like sitting, might be flagging, the other one would, would want to do it, and so we would both do it. And so there was that sense of, of um, peer support, you could say. Um, I think it, just from an institutional point of view, just, just to recognise the role that um, uh, lay people, married people, um, have played over the years at, at, the, at the centre where we trained. Um, very big part of it. Um, uh, that there's been more accommodation for um, parents with children as we, as we took over a second place, the country retreat centre Chapin Mill, which was more flexible in its living arrangements. And so there's a lot of activities held for, for the children and parents now. Um, out at Chapin Mill where there's more room and more possibility for accommodating uh, children. Um, just before I hand over to Hogan Sen, so I've got just two koans to, to um, look at briefly, um, which 
among many uh, um, that shine a light on on marriage and on relationship. And and the first one is comes from the Shoyu Roku. It's number twenty, and it's um, it's called um, Jizo's most intimate. And just take a bit out of it. At one point, Jizo asks your namesake, <laughs> okay, um, what do you want pilgrimage for? And and Hogan says, I don't know. And then Jizo says, not knowing is most intimate. And we're told that at that point, um, Hogan came to awakening. I, I think it's a very useful teaching in terms of how we relate to our spouse, especially a spouse of long standing. Um, it's more than 40 years now for, for Richard and me. And um, not knowing is most intimate. Um, I can I can honestly say that after more than forty years I still don't know my husband. <laughs> Just as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can I can still be I can still be surprised. I can still be delighted. I can still uh, look forward to coming home, and and a big part of that is not not um, having a, a, a fixed idea about who and what my husband is. Um, and we can get, sometimes we can get misled by routine uh, and I think as we get older we, we fall into routines more. Um, but to really know that every time we go through something that we routinely do every day, it's not the same, you know, it's, that's an idea we have in our mind. Actually it's, it's completely fresh and new, you know. If nothing else, we're a day older <coughs> than we were the last time we did whatever we're doing. Um, and you know, just having, keeping that awareness, it's not morbid, but keeping that awareness in mind that uh, we're one day closer to losing each other. We're, we're, we know that, you know, this is, this is the nature of, of the world we live in, nothing stays the same. And just that can help us to, to come to each moment really freshly. So um, that's just one. That's just one example of one koan which we really can have have a lesson for us in terms of of, of marriage. The other one um, is a little bit longer, and I see I'm running out of out of time. Um, but let me try and say this say this one as as um, in a concise way as I can. Um, one of the koans in the Mumon Khan, number 35, is called Say and Her Soul Separate. And um, it's, it comes from a Chinese folk um, story, which in, in itself is unusual. And then it's, it's a koan which actually has a, uh, a female character, one of the few that has a female character. And it's very, the, the actual case is very short. It's, Goso asks a monk, Say and Her Soul Separated. Which is the true one? So this is the question. Say and her soul separated. Which is the true one? And the story is a kind of ghost story about these two young children, Say and Ochu, who grew up together. And um, the father used to joke that they were such a good couple, they, could get, they should get married when they grew up. And they, the two children took this seriously and they fell in love. 
and grew up together expecting that when they, when they grew, grew old enough they would be married. But then the father changed the plans, and this was, you know, Confucian, patriarchal Confucian China, that he wanted to marry, say, to somebody else. And this was um, uh, about to go ahead, this, this marriage. And so Ochu, the, 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 the young man who was in love with Sei, um, left. He got on a boat to go to another place, um, sort of admitting defeat that he couldn't go against the, the wishes of Sei's father. And Sei, at this point, falls ill and um, is, is like in a kind of coma at home. And Ochu's traveling on the boat and then to his delight and surprise he finds that Say is on the boat too. And so they keep traveling, they go to another place and they get married there and they have two kids and um, all is going along but then Say feels this strong pull to go back to visit her parents. Um, you know, the, this bond is so strong within, within Chinese culture, any culture really. And so she, she convinces her husband to take her take her back home to, um, to make amends with the family and Ochu goes ahead to talk to the father and the father says no you can't you say can't be with you because she's right here she's in she's in the bedroom like you must be somebody you know she must be somebody else but then he brings say along and when and when they they meet the 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 the, the say asleep in the bed and the say that has been on the boat and had two children with, with Ochu, they merge. And then the one who's been in the bed has no recollection of what has happened. Um, so that's, that's the, the, the um, folktale behind the question, Goso asked a monk, say and her soul are separated, which is the true one? And so when you take up this koan, the, what is asked of you is that you demonstrate the true nature of say. What is the true nature of say? And so that's the, that's the point, the, the main point in the koan. But it's really, you can say without getting into, into the, um, the answer there, or the demonstration, that this is a koan which looks at oneness and two-ness. This comes out a little bit in the verse which, which goes, the moon among the clouds is ever the same different from each other, the mountain and the valley. How wonderful, how blessed. Is this one, is this two? Is this one, is this two? Not only say in her soul are they one or two, but say in Ochu one or two. If we're in a, in a relationship, is that, are we one? Or are we two? And in relationship, you get stuck on either of those. If you get stuck on we're one, so you know, you should do what I want to do, or we're two, I should do what I want to do. <laughs> it's problematic. So, um, what's the truth in the situation? Are we one or are we two? So, I'll stop there and hand over to Hogan Sensei. I was just trying to find a string and pull it to describe uh, being together 50 years. Um, I grew up in Brooklyn. 
uh, I was a tough kid, and I never went to, uh, when I was in college, I never went to parties because uh, the girls I met were um, what we would call Jewish American princesses. Um, there's a more pejorative term for that. Um, it was the kind of thing of, don't get my nails dirty, watch my hair, you know, that kind of understanding. And I was a tough kid, I was an athlete. And um, for some reason, I went to this one party. Um, and I walked into the room and I looked across the room and there was a, a girl dancing. Uh, she was young, uh, she had perfect skin. She had eyes I couldn't describe. She wore no makeup. They said, oh, she must be from Sweden. Um, I was Jewish, um, but I was just taken. And she was dancing with someone. She stopped. She went over to her stuff. And in her stuff was a book called The Naked Ape, which at the time was a very um, best-selling scientific book by an anthropologist, um, which of course I had read because I read everything. Um, and I said, oh, well, she might even have some intelligence, <laughs> um, which my perspective says what it says. So I introduced myself and um, she introduced herself and we started dancing. And um, at the end of the evening, uh, I brought her home she was a nursing student. She'd been in New York City for a couple of weeks. She was from a small town in Canada. And um, I went back home, and I said to myself, I'm going to marry that girl. And um, unbeknownst to me. Oh, well. Uh, the girls used to go out Friday night uh, to fraternity parties. and. On Saturday, we'd go out with the person we met the week before. And I met Hogan on a Friday, and Saturday I had a blind date, so I had no phone number or anything. So the blind date comes, and I said, I don't want to go out with you. I've met the man I'm going to marry. And he said, how could you possibly know that? Come out with me for a half hour. So I went out with him for a half hour. We went to a beach called Manhattan Beach where we ended up living at one point. And I said, take me back. I'm not interested. And uh, yeah, so it, it, I was 17. And uh, who knows? That's just what happened. I don't know. So there must be a lesson about karma in there somewhere. <laughs> um, so one thing led to another. And um, we eventually got married, and we've been together since then. Um, through thick and thin, um, I began practicing um, formally in the 70s, late 70s, uh, when I met Kapla Roshi, who came. At that point, we were married and living in Denver, and he came out uh, a week or two after I first started formally sitting and met him and um, realized this is a man who's going to be my teacher. And he went back east, and um, uh, we had a 
there was a small center in Denver, and um, I tried to apply for Sashin, and it took two years before they would accept me because Sashin was a set piece. The same people went every time, and no one from Denver was going to get in. <laughs> and that was it. And I considered actually just showing up and saying, making them kick me out. Um, but eventually, um, um, I got into Sashin. And um, in practicing, um, Aho, I think, articulated, uh, she wasn't interested. I was now away two times a week going to the center to sit. And then uh, over a relatively short period of time, she said, well, uh, I like this guy a lot better <laughs> when he sits. I think I'll try it. Um, so that formed a, a joint interest, which was primary. Um, we eventually had one child, but we decided purposely to only have one child because we felt we couldn't practice and go to Sashin on the basis of how often we wanted to. And through the 80s, I don't know, I don't know if it's a fact, but I don't think there were any Sashin without one of us being there. And then when our son got a little older, uh, we left him with a, an immediate neighbor and we both went. Um, we were distant from our teacher, obviously, but also very close. He, on his visits, he came to our house, he stayed with us, he knew our son, he gave Jakai to our son when he was young. Um, and so we, um, I guess the best that I can say, the most accurate thing I can say about our marriage or relation to practice is that it's a team effort. We're a team. And that how we live and how we, um, in the details of life. Um, if, if you've ever participated in a team at its best, you realize that there's each individual person, and yet there's a common goal. And each individual person is different, and yet the, the, the understanding that this is a team working together um, in a specific way means that each person has to let go of something and also harness their individual talents in the name of the team. And that's how I've come to view it over the, over the years. Um, at some point we both entered the monastery. Aho had some medical issues and couldn't participate fully. Um, I became a monastic, which in that tradition is a lifetime commitment uh, with very specific vows. Um, and um, things went along, and after a number of years, uh, I was, I speak of you as if you're not here, but you know, um, uh, got ill enough that she decided she had to leave. And um, I didn't have any hesitation. I knew if she had to leave, I had to leave. And when I told my teacher, Dido Laurie, that, he was very, very upset. Um, his perspective was A, my vows, and B, um, my place within the uh, monastery, which was a fairly prominent place. Um, but there was no hesitation in my mind. We were a team. She had to leave. 
I understood that. Um, and so we left and um, moved to Pittsburgh and I resurrected an old secondary profession of being a pharmacist and earned a living. And we reestablished a silly life as a team. Um, and eventually I received transmission of the Dharma, was asked to step into co-leadership of the temple in Brooklyn, which is a large, busy place, which I do today, uh, sharing that, as a team. And when, when I go, it's about a three and a half hour job from where, uh, drive. drive from where I live, we go together, almost always. And um, she takes care of certain things at the temple, and I take care of certain things at the temple, and sometimes we overlap. Um, and it works very well. Um, a couple of times I had to be um, notified that, for example, I am not a host teacher. Her practice is hers. My practice is mine. Uh, that's an important lesson, that if we live together, um, what won't work, this is what I can promise you. You vowed in the Zendo to do it this way, and now you're breaking that vow. <laughs> that will not work. <laughs> uh, so we don't do that. Um, um, you know, living with someone intimately, um, you know a lot about them, and also there has to be space for you not to know. Um, there has to be a, a fundamental trust. Um, and uh, I have to say, at this point in my life, um, I don't view my relationship and my practice as any different. It's not that they're two things that are similar or overlap, they are exactly the same. That my practice and my marriage, and there's more to it than that, I'm being very um, brief. Um, um, in fact, I don't even think of it as marriage. I just think of it as um, this is a life that we're living, that we're practicing together as one body in two different manifestations. And as we get older, um, again, um, the, the, the thought does occur, one of us is likely to die before the other, and have sometimes, you know, half thought, is it better for her to die first? So, because I'm not there for her, uh, I'm not saying this very clearly, but you get it. Which is better for her? For me to die first or for her to die first from the least selfish, most, most supportive point of view? But there's no real sense in thinking about that because I've learned that death is unpredictable and people I thought were going to live forever haven't. And people I thought were going to die fairly quickly lived forever seemingly. <laughs> um, so it doesn't work that way. Um, <clears throat> You know, when I, when I think of the basis for our marriage, um, a, a deep and profound respect and love, um, although there's romance and intimacy and all the things that a couple has together physically and mentally, um, in a different way I don't um, see any difference towards uh, each of you here. Um, and my relationship with each of you, even though I don't know you, um, with some exceptions. Um, I have to say that stepping into the Zendo and seeing all the robes that I'm so familiar with, um, uh, I 
feel like I know every one of you. <laughs> I feel very, very much at home here um, and very familiar. Um, and that's how I feel about my marriage, that it's um, um, say and her soul are not separated, and yet there is say and there is her soul. And um, so. I've learned over the years to use tools to help me cope everyday life, okay? Um, I have a lot of emotions and feelings and desires and uh, things I don't want or things that I have and I don't want to lose and um, just all the same emotions that everybody has, greed, anger, and ignorance, I, I have it. And every day I have to, by my own choice, to use these tools that I've, that I've garnered over the years to live as what I call as decent a life as possible. Okay, this is, uh, and Hogan always usually talks about not harming not harming others. And I think that's a, a big part of it. Um, so i just uh, like to speak a little bit about some of the ways that I can live, not only in this relationship, which has gone on for a very long time, it almost feels like we're not like this, we're, we're this, and um, we're... Uh, just really in tune with each other and we still, I still get aggravated and, or, or just all the emotions. I still have all the emotions no matter what, you know, it's not, you get to a certain point and then it's all bliss. That's not true, <laughs> I, you know. Uh, I think uh, I have to work on it every day, but he's also very precious to me. But also, it's not describable how everything becomes precious. You know, it, it just becomes, you know, at first it was like looking at little children and how beautiful they are and how full of life, but then looking at plants and trees and other people, how beautiful and precious everyone becomes after a while. So what I think what I've learned in in the ups and downs of this relationship, I've extrapolated into my entire life so that you're very precious also. And it's hard to describe how that happens, but it does happen. And I have to work on it, otherwise I lose it. You know, otherwise I become dissatisfied with myself, with my life, with everything's a relationship. So unless I'm working on every single relationship I have, Every day for me, I lose it and then I have less appreciation. So I'm just going to mention a few things. Um, I just read recently that Winston Churchill said, we've always found the Irish a bit odd. They refuse to be English. <laughs> and I, I think that's like a relationship you have. The other person is not you. 
but they have the same needs and requirements that I have. And so this person being a male and grew up how he was may be odd because he's not me. He's not English. He refuses to be English or me. You know what I mean? So that has to always be taken into consideration. Um, also, many, many years ago, the Dalai Lama said some things in a book called Kindness, Clarity, and Insight, and I have remembered that forever. And he stressed that everyone wants to be happy, everyone deserves to be happy, no one wants to suffer, and no one deserves to suffer. So that when I look at this person, I, and, and, and other people, if I'm in that space, I know you want the same thing as me. You want to be happy, you don't want to suffer. I, don't, I want to be happy, I don't want to suffer. So when I see the other acting out of whatever they're acting out of, I just know they're trying to be happy. It's not personal to me. And that's what they're needing at the moment to be happy, however you want to define happy. And they don't want to suffer. So however, whatever's going on, it's a manifestation of that in a very basic kind of way. Although our karma is very complicated, so that's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty simple and basic, right? So anyway, so if I can keep that attitude, then I don't take everything as a put down of me if I can't get what I want. Okay, so I try and always keep that in mind. Um, also, he said that in our past lives, we've been in all kinds of relationships with others. We could either have been in a positive relationship, uh, someone could be our brother, our sister, our mother, our father, or we can be in a very negative relationship, someone could try and kill us, or actually kill us, or be an enemy, or just be a horrible person we don't want to know anything about, or we could have had a neutral relationship. So we're all somehow karmically related. And what he said was, think of everybody as your mother. And in Tibetan, um, Tibetan people honor and love their mothers. And I had a very difficult relationship with my mother, so it was like I had to make a shift in consciousness for that. So if you were my mother, how would I treat you? Um, I had an incident when our son was maybe 10 or 12, and I wanted him to put his dishes in the dishwasher, clean his room, and walk the dog. Well, that didn't work out very well. <laughs> and so uh, Hogan said to me, uh, do you want to be right, or do you want to have a loving relationship? And of course, I opted for a loving relationship. So I completely changed how I interacted with my son. My son is here, I'm here, I put myself in his position. What would I want my mother to say to me? What would I want her, how would I want her to act? What would be helpful for me? So I completely changed the way I interacted with our son. And so instead of coming in the house, running upstairs to his room and closing the door, he would now come in the house give me a hug and a kiss, and then go up to his room. <laughs> and close the door. And close the door. <laughs> so what do I want? Do I want to be right? 
or do I want to have a loving relationship? So if I can keep that in mind also, not only does Hogan want the same thing I want, how would I want, how would he want me to act in relationship to him? And very often, I don't do it well. I get angry. Uh, I get uh, concentrated on what I want, and I lose it that way. But then I can always come back to it. So it's like Zen practice. You sit down, and your mind goes, and it's all over the place. And you see it, and if you start with a practice of counting your breaths, you count, and then you're off, and then you're back to one, and you count, you're off, and you're back to one. So it's the same thing, learning to focus my mind, keep it in reality, keep it here, not in here, who knows where, and what, how do I need to act out of what the moment requires? What's important to the moment, not just to me, because I'm just like everybody else. I'm no more special, I'm no more important. And if I can keep that in mind, then I can act intentionally, and uh, things go a lot better for me and everyone else. So Zazen practice really allows us to, me, to, to focus and be in the present and see all the stuff happening and just keep coming back to the present. And so that's probably what I want to see. Let's see what else. Oh, yes. There's a wonderful lady named Byron Katie. I don't know if anybody knows about mm -hmm. Byron Katie. Do you know Byron Katie? Yes, yes, yes. yes. Okay. Uh, I always go by some of her, her, her sayings. She says, that's God's business, that's not my business. So when the kids are acting up, we live with three grandchildren and our son and daughter-in-law and animals and everything. So I look at what's going on and I say, that's God's business, that's not my business. And I shut my mouth and that's it. She also says, if you have a thought or an emotion or an opinion, you say to yourself, is it true? And then you kind of say, well, is it true? True. And then she says, is it really true? And then she says, how would you be without that thought or opinion? How would your life be without holding on to that thought or opinion? And then that's worth really looking at. You know, how would my life be seeing what's around me rather than being in my head. So I think Zen practice helps tremendously with that. Uh, and to see ourselves constantly and our mind wandering all over and having all the different, different greed, anger, and ignorance uh, arise, and but seeing it. And a lot of times it's after the fact, and then I say, oh, okay, here I go again, and then proceed and try and do better. You know, better in a way that's kinder and, um, you know, decent. Thank you. I'll just say yes to all that. Um, yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, I think um, I know for, for me, um, Zen practice is just realizing just how fluid and everything is always changing. 
and not just the other person, a person that you love deeply, not as a fixed entity. I'm not a fixed entity and she's not a fixed entity. We're, we're always subtly changing and, um, oh, you're always like that, or she's like that, I'm like that. Not necessarily so. We'd all have um, our own characteristics, our web, a way of reacting. But Zen gives us an opportunity to, to see into how we react with each other, with the world, and um, just to realize there's a lot more space that we have, a lot more opportunities for letting go of, of ideas and concepts, and just being in the moment. So that's, um, I think, being, being uh, adaptable and flexible in a relationship is, is really important. Because if you really love the other, then you want what's best for the other. And she or he will want what's best for you. That's sort of the bottom line. There's a wonderful quote by uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. He's probably best known for his book, The Little Prince. And he says this, <clears throat> Love does not consist in gazing at each other, but in looking together in the same direction. Love does not consist in gazing at each other, but in looking together in the same direction. Of course, at first, it is gazing at the one you love, this romantic love. But over the years, um, if you become a couple, you become a pair, and you orientate in the same direction. And of course, for us, for Ma and I, it was Zen practice. That was the direction we were looking in. And to really, as much as we can, to resolve the great question of birth and death. Who am I? What is this life? And um, we were able to give support to each other in this investigation, in, this, in sort of our, our Zen adventure, which is continuing, it's always changing. And um, so that's the great, um, the great benefit of being a couple. And we, we mentioned marriage, but instead of marriage, you could just say in any long-term committed relationship, is that you do support each other. Sometimes one, one is down and the other's up, or the other's up and the other's down, and you can, you, there's this mutual support, and um, yeah, that, that goes on in a relationship, which is important. Um, and we all work out stuff with ours in tradition. Um, you know, we've all gone through intense training at our Zen centers. And um, it's like an, a, a, sort of been a koan for Western Zen is it's inherited a, um, a monastic celibate system from the Japanese. And how does this work in the West, where most members are lay practitioners? And Zen centers have, in temples and monasteries have been working through this issue for, for decades now. And um, it's still going on, but I think what is, 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 is important for Zen communities is, uh, is just to have couples who are in um, stable long-term relationships that can really uh, give stability to a Zen sitting group or a Zen center. 
And I think there's more acknowledgement of that now. I know that in the early days of the Rochester Zen Centre in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s, it was very much a monastic model. And they actually tried out to having celibate monks at the centre, which were usually young guys in their 20s, and it didn't work. It was like a, a failed experiment. Uh, but even through the 70s, families were not really encouraged too much, or they were sort of, it was sort of um, considered that, you know, um, the real true practitioners were on their own in the Zendo, sort of forging ahead. And that's changed now. But um, I remember one time when we were in training at the Zen Center, we, you always at centers try out different things, and we were having staff discussions or discussion groups up in the, up in the library at the center, and there was um, an old-time Zen Center member who'd monitored many sashins, who was the husband of a, of a, a, a teacher in the capital lineage, long-time member of the Zen Center. And, and so for the discussion group, he, were, he brought up this, it was like a bit of a blast from the past. He was just sort of suggesting, well, um, maybe, you know, staff members should just be single, single people, not in relationships, so they should, you know, um, could be able to concentrate fully on their practice. And, and Mala and I had been in the Zen Center for quite a few years at that point in relationship. So we felt this a bit odd. So we brought up with this guy, hey, you know, you're married, our teacher's married, the head of Zendo, who lived off site, is also married. So what do you want to impose on us? when you guys are in relationships. And he, he um, didn't have much to come back on on that. And um, that sort of fizzled and, and um, yeah, didn't come up again. But that was sort of lingering in the background that the, the model for a Zen student was to be solo, going, going solo. The other thing, um, the other last thing I came to mind was, um, while we were at the Zen Center, there was Rochester Center, and I think Zen Mount Monastery has done this, is hosted Zen teachers. So Zen teachers, American Zen teachers would come and get together and share ideas and American teachings. Zen Teachers Association. Yeah, Zen Teachers Association. So this time it was, um, it was at the, the venue, it was the Rochester Zen Center, and um, Amala had just been sanctioned as a teacher. And I was upstairs, um, I think doing some photocopying, and the husband of one of the uh, women's in teachers from the West Coast came up to me, sort of looked, looked at me, looked over at me, stared me very intently in the, in the eyes and said, you've got to become a teacher too. You've got to, you know, you, you have to become a teacher as well. And I thought, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> and I sort of, I sort of realised that that was sort of he was projecting onto me, uh, that he obviously, his wife was a teacher. He'd been in practicing Zen for a long, long time. He was also ex Rochester Zen Centre, and that he, you know, he really wanted to be a teacher too. Um, I didn't have that same issue. A few years later, he did become a teacher. His wife sanctioned him. <laughs> much, much to the displeasure of their Japanese teacher, oh their teacher back in Japan. So, um, so, that, so when we came back to New Zealand, um, 
I really appreciate it. Because part of this practice is to see into the self, the self that is no self. And to do this practice, I also begin to appreciate how roles are important in relationships and roles in life. You know, uh, we have the role as, as being a father or a mother, a daughter, husband, wife, son, we have roles in business. And these are really important. And I knew that when we came back to Auckland, Amala was full time as a teacher. I knew that one of us had to earn a living. So um, it just so happened that two months after we got back in 2004, I was offered a data entry job at the Ministry of Education um, <clears throat> for about three weeks, which I did. And then the, the person who ran our team at the Ministry of Education, the ESOL team, English teachers of English learners of other languages, Lily Lee, took a liking to me and offered me a fixed term position at the Ministry of Education. So I had a job for a year. And then after the end of the year, it turned into a permanent position. In fact, I only worked four days a week. Monday was my writing day. And so for 13 years, I worked at the Ministry of Education as an ESOL support officer. And I really appreciate that time as my role as working with schools and principals, supporting ESOL teachers in the classroom, as well as being fully involved with the, Rochester, with the Auckland Zen Centre and the way that was developing. And so I, that was part of my role, it was to be a, a bread earner. And I also had the role as a writer, which was important too. So now I've taken semi-retirement and I can devote myself more to writing. So that was yeah, just the importance of roles. We each have a role to play. And to do that wholeheartedly, if it's, you know, grandparents, parents, whatever, I think Zen helps us with um, just become just becoming one and whatever whatever we're required to do. So maybe I think that's probably enough. For me, um, well, thank you all. <coughs> thank you all. Um, I think now it's just it's opening up to people's questions or comments from the floor. And uh, because we've got this little recorder here, um, if people could say their question, then I'll repeat it so that we make sure that we get it on the, on the recording. People have questions. Or if for comments, maybe the best thing is that we pass, pass you the recorder. Okay, so Hanya's asking about the um, um, the transition from what was what was went on in Japan to how that was inherited in in the West and how it's grown. Um, yeah, and your experiences about it personally. 
Yeah. One thing I just add to what Richard said was that there is also was also is also a tradition in Japan of a married priest, but that's distinguished from the monk. The monk is the word monk comes from monos, which means single, and so traditionally a monk is is a, is a um, that we that came from China anyway was a celibate monk living in a monastery. Um, So I'll say something about that. Um, the Daito Lori, the founder of the Mountains and Rivers Order, was very clear that he wanted a sharp distinction between lay practice and monastic practice. And he wasn't, he had respect for the Japanese and Chinese tradition, but he wanted a Western tradition. And he also had a background, some background, in. Uh, Catholicism and monasticism and Catholicism. And so he set up an order where the monastics um, could be celibate or in a committed long-term relationship. Could be homosexual, heterosexual, didn't matter, it was irrelevant. But um, the monastics all had to have a stable life in regard to relationship um, in that um, you, you can't have a training center that's unsafe from that perspective, where people are on the hunt or... It happens anyway, but um, at least you can do your best to keep it safe. Um, and so the... And there were other, uh, quote, precepts, you could say, for a, one of um, not quite... Um, um, being, uh, having no money, but that your possessions were everybody's possessions, so as a monastic. Um, so stability, um, not many possessions, um, devotion to the Dharma, the service, which was a key thing, um, a practice towards realization, which was another key thing, I'm leaving one out, I don't remember what it was. Um, and long-term commitment, lifetime commitment, I mentioned that, that when I left the monastery, because Ehu was ill, um, I was faced with two different lifetime commitments, and I was very clear on which one I was going to uphold. And uh, Daito was initially very upset with me, uh, and later came to me and said, I want you to know I admire what you did. Uh, he himself did not do well with long-term relationships. Um, and so, this is part of Zen in the West. We have to find our own way. And I would have never considered being a monastic of being celibate. That was off the list. Just didn't work for me. Um, so that's one of the reasons I was attracted to that, that it was clear what a monastic was. And I'm using the term not monk, but monastic, because both genders were present. Um, and what a layperson was. And although I'm a lay person now, I have to say that my love for practicing as a monastic uh, was deep and profound, and I still feel internally that way, that I am a monastic, but I'm not. I, I live a lay life with the responsibilities of a lay life and grandchildren, etc. So um, I think what you said before, that we have to find our own way. It, to a certain extent, we're on our own. And although there's a lineage, and you have a strong lineage, 
you still are on your own. You have to make it work in this culture, uh, for these people, for these people. And if, you're, if you hold to the letter of the law, you, it's not going to go well. And if you disregard the lineage, it's not going to go well. Uh, so I don't know if I'm answering your question, but... Uh, you, you're presenting the koan. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that, of course, is what it is. It's um, ongoing, non-going. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd like to say something here. Uh, when I was much younger, uh, I was practicing at uh, Roshi Kaplaus, and I was pretty desperate uh, regarding the question of life and death. And, I was afraid at, that, at the same time. I thought if I realized myself, I would disappear and somehow die. I, I, I don't know why, but you know, I'd get to a certain point and then the fear would hold me back from being just released to, to practice so that I, dis, I disappeared. And then finally when I, I found, uh, someone said that, look, your teacher has realized they're still here. So, you know. So then I was able to, to uh, work very hard in a desperate way and finally, you know, enough to see something, you know, enough to drop myself to see something. But that was a very young person's practice. Uh, as I got older, it became more and more difficult. When we went to Zen Mountain Monastery, uh, I, tried to, I tried to participate as much as possible. But there wasn't the flexibility there at Kaplau's or at uh, Daido Roshi's that is needed for real human beings, not just young, fanatic, like Japanese young Which men. You yes, I was ill for many years. And uh, so I withdrew because I couldn't do it. I couldn't do what was expected. It was just too painful. I just, Zazen was very painful. I couldn't. I couldn't sit for a session. But then, over the years, the flexibility showed itself, okay, as the Sangha aged. And I think that's the difference, is uh, the original standard of the young, gung-ho, desperate male, male do anything, uh, gave way to reality. And that we're actually human beings with flesh and blood and have needs. and. And, and so that's very, uh, this, uh, there was a session a couple weeks ago uh, in uh, Stavely, and I was able to join for Zazen when I could, and rest, and join for Oriyoki, and then rest, and join for chanting, and rest. And it was like I could participate. But in the past, I could not have been acknowledged as a practitioner or participate. And I think this young male model is really destructive. Uh, fundamentally destructive. And it shouldn't be replaced by another model. It should be replaced by human beings. Uh, and um, so how do you keep the door as wide open and yet preserve the heart of the practice? And that's the koan. Yeah. Yeah. we all face. And, and flexibility is, you know, and a that different people need to do Sashin differently. I think that's also really, really important. So it's, it's not seen as being some special thing, but it's actually what we need to do, you know. Um, um, you had a question? Oh, yes. um, <coughs> I did. I had a, actually a, 
a comment to make about what you're saying around the, this the male fanatical model is that uh, how I can't see how that model can lead a flock of people who are based in reality if you're not based in reality yourself with having the same sorts of relationship quandaries how can you lead us with our issues because and they're not separated from spiritual ones in fact the relationship problems can be spiritual problems deep down and if you haven't encountered the same I don't know how you can help us get through ours so um, and I don't know how I can take someone else seriously about their advice if they've just led this um, narrow monastic life. Uh, they might have great advice, but it would be difficult for, for me and perhaps some of us here to, to accept it wholeheartedly if it, it, uh, if it comes from that person, if that makes sense. So I'm, in, I'm saying I'm in agreement with flexibility and the opposite, I can't actually see how it would work. Um, but it clearly has over the years. Um, my question is again around, I get a bit that model, because if I extend it, um, you, should, you shouldn't be married. But if you are married, ideally you'd be married to somebody else who is a Zen practitioner or of the faith. So what happens when you're not in a relationship or married to somebody of the same faith? Because I still think, and I want it to work, my partner isn't, of the Zen faith, but he is um, a good man of great integrity. And sometimes I feel that, oh, you know, is this, uh, it, it, is this gonna become a barrier at some point, even though it hasn't been in the past? So how, um, I don't know if you have any experience in helping people navigate that. I think it's something that comes up and some people struggle with it, some people don't, just depending on what the relationship is between the two, the two parts of the relationship. Um, uh, some, somebody mentioned, I think it was you, Aho, about you saw that, that Hogan was a nicer guy <laughs> when he practiced, and I think that's, the, that's really the key mm. point is you know something's going right when your spouse says to you, don't you think you should go and sit now? Or children also, I hear from people again and again and again that their children say that to them. Um, I'll go to Sashin. Yeah, please. <laughs> You're so much nicer when you come back, you know. Um, so, but in terms of, you know, a lot, a lot of sustained practice, it's definitely, it's definitely you need an understanding spouse. Yeah. I think also uh, it helps to cultivate uh, a deep faith in yourself so that, um, I mean, one of the things I've learned in relation, we, we don't sit together. We tried that early on and it did not work. Different rhythms, different energies, different people. Um, and I'm very regimented in how I approach my Zen practice and sitting every day and how I do it and where I do it, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I'm not in a monastery anymore. Uh, so three grandkids, a farm, da 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 da, a wife. Um, how can I walk the middle way of 
what can I do? How can I be responsible for the problem? That's, that's the way I literally look at it. And that usually means I have to open my hands. I have to let go of some idea. I have to sit. I have to sit now. If I don't sit now, then da 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 da. And uh, some days I'm not going to be able to sit. Uh, or um, I have to, uh, at 11 o'clock at night, sneak off into some place in the house to sit because up until then, my time is not my own, really. Um, or, and this applies to way beyond sitting. I mean, if you start to think in these terms, how can I support my partner and all of the var other variables in a busy life, um, take care of myself, and yet, uh, fundamentally, um, while taking care of myself, put others first. And uh, it's the middle way. It's, as you say, it's a koan. And there are some days, I'm sorry, I have to sit. And there are other days, not happening because of circumstances. And I have to be okay with that. I Meaning I have to practice that, I have to work with that. And if I go too far in one direction, then I'm not taking care of myself. And if I go too far in my, the other direction, well, I know that well, I'm being selfish as hell. And I recognize that. Uh, and a lot of times it's not clear. I don't know, it doesn't matter. I'm gonna take care of this situation for the other person. If in doubt, that's how I look at it, because I don't seem to have any trouble taking care of myself, ultimately. <laughs> you know, I'm skilled at getting what I want, and I think most Zen practitioners are, <laughs> one way or another, you wouldn't be here. Um, but also, the implication is to know yourself. Know if I um, constantly give myself away and take care of the other person, well, that needs to be looked at. You know, that's... You know, that's the role of a mother, that's the role of, you know, a lot of times we've grown up in that role. Or if I've grown up in the role where, you know, I know what I'm doing and I had to do it, get out of my way. You know, well, that's going to have a certain karma as well. So, we study. Also, you uh, were perhaps a little worried that it might become an issue in the future. But all we have is now. And now. And now. This is wonderful. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I find the whole discussion really. Uh, really interesting, um, just in terms of having lived um, at Zen Mountain Monastery in the States and um, seen all the changes over the years. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I used to think, to be honest, like when I used to see people taking the monastic vows, I used to think, wow, they're really going in for life. But I don't think that anymore because it just doesn't seem to be able, m most people don't seem to be able to carry that on for life in our society or, or, or how, how like, you know, how America is or how here is as well. And so I just wonder um, in terms of um, you know, the, the, the lifelong commitment 
Um, it seems the people that manage to stay on this is just at our monastery or do that for life are the exception and not and not the rule from what I've seen over the over the years and um, you know I don't have any um, uh, I don't have any judgment about that but I, but it, it does seem like the way that that is set up like that it takes so long with the model that Dido set up as this kind of Catholic you know step by step so long for them to become fully ordained and it, it doesn't often it doesn't often it, it can't they can't sustain it and so I know you've been through that process and um, for most people it, the relationship question is what um, they have to address or they have to or they can't work it out in the monastic setting or something you know like that so I'm just curious about how because um, I know there's other Buddhist traditions sometimes where people come in and they ordain for a period of time or something like that you know in the Thai tradition they do this and that um, and um, yeah it seems quite a complex sort of heritage that we're kind of dealing with here and so I don't know I guess I'm just seeing what 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 comment might obviously I haven't been through it and I and and um, uh, yeah I'm wondering you know how it how it will evolve and 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 what is what is what is possible um, for people I really struggled when I left the monastery um, because although it was very clear to leave I mean it when I have said I have to leave I said I'm going that was my response there was no thought so I was very clear on of my two lifetime vows which one came first um, and uh, you know the one way to look at what happened is that I was a failed monastic <laughs> you know that I, I failed in that vow I, I never looked at it that way but I felt very very guilty for a long time for a number of years because my leaving the monastery created a large space that as it turned out no one else could fill in the way that I filled it uh, which is not a pat on my back it was the circumstances and the position and uh, I, th I think you understand it pretty clearly um, and that load fell on a lot of other people who already were carrying full loads that aside um, when I take those vows be of marriage or at the end of sitting sentient beings and unless I vow to save them or monastic vows my intent is full my intent is complete and that's what I have at this moment um, and that that vow holds me um, and I rely on that vow I live out of that vow to the best of my fumbling ability um, and things change so I'll give you an actual example uh, Shugen Roshi is the abbot of Zen Mountain Monastery his wife is named Jiman she was a remarkable monastic for many years um, and yet in a particular way could not find her place in the monastery and I think that was um, subtly obvious 
she, it didn't quite fit, and I could go into why or my anal analysis of why, but it didn't quite fit. And her husband became Abbott uh, after Dido's death. And she realized, having made these lifelong commitment and carrying it out for, I don't know, 25, 30 years, she had to leave monasticism. And she left, and her, her ability and her talents was to counsel people who are dying. And, and that was a remarkable ability that she had and has. Um, I don't consider that failing. I consider that Zen practice and monastic practice took her exactly where she needed to be, where her talents fit, and it's a much more complex picture than I'm presenting, um, where her abilities and so on and so forth. And I've come away over time uh, realizing that people who do practice for a long period of time will unfailing, that it will unfailingly take them where they need to be. And that may be away from Zen practice. And when that's clear to me or to others, um, I suggest that. It seems so obvious, it seems so clear that they should be doing something other than being in residence, being a monastic. Da, 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 it's not a small thing. This is with due and appropriate consideration. Uh, and so there are several other instances uh, that we would know that people who took the monastic vows, which is a long process, it's in Mountain Monastery, it doesn't happen in two years or three years or four years. I mean, you have to really want it. <laughs> Um, and then some time later left, um, I think the, the practice worked. Um, they did the best, et cetera, et cetera. So. Yeah, I can. Yeah, I'll just, um, yeah, I'll just add to that just from a personal perspective that after 12 years of intense training at the Rochester Zen Center, I see that now as, a, as part of a cycle, that I was younger then, and it was a, I, I look back on those 12 years as being a really wonderful time. That was my sort of intense Zen cycle. And what it did, it gave me a foundation to, to really live my life to the full, and to, to continue the practice, but in another cycle, a cycle outside um, centers and rigorous training, training period. But I can look back, and really I can look back and appreciate what I learned during those 12 years, and how I was, I was supported not only um, in marriage, but in the Sangha, the Rochester Sangha, who were amazing, and just um, people who were outside the center who weren't training full time, but would come in for sittings, and having really deep friendships with people in the Rochester Sangha supported, supported us greatly while we were training at the Zen Center. So we, we were always part of a, a network of support. Um, when you went into a sort of commitment like Zen practice, you find you're supported in all sorts of different directions with your practice. So how I see it is just, it's, it's sort of cycles. You go through an intense training cycle and then your life moves on to something else. But you draw upon what you, what you, what you learnt in that intense period that infuses, you know, the years to come. Yeah, I, I think what I'm 
pointing or feeling, you know, these cycles are very, they're a very natural part of human experience, but they don't, they don't exist in the models kind no, of thing. Not they don't, they're not, they're not, yeah, they're not sort of fixed there. So, I mean, I definitely don't regard anybody as having left, having, having failed, but I'm, it's like, um, yeah, what is the, um, yeah, what different models can there be or what, you know, what sort of, um, how that works, um, so. I think from the very first time we went to, to Rochester, which is, in, which is in 1986, I had this dream. When I came back to New Zealand, I, I had this really strong dream of I want to reproduce here what I experienced in Rochester because it was so amazing, the sense of community and the sense of, an, of a place where everybody was working together on the same thing. And, and so that was all, always there, all through, through my training, um, even though of course I had to drop it completely to do the training. But then coming back and starting to, to work here, um, I realised and I'm taught again and again, that there's no such thing as reproduction. <laughs> we have to produce not reproduce and we have to adapt to circumstances and and it's going to be different the practice here is necessarily different from what we experience there for many many different reasons you know just the ex, uh, the expense of living in Auckland um, th that's made a huge difference to the way we have to structure things in terms of supporting people in full-time practice and we've got to recognize that that we don't have um, a, a residential training centre here which can really fully support somebody living in, a, in the centre. And so w if we're supporting people in, in their training, we have to um, support them to live in Auckland, which is quite, quite um, demanding. And I'm just interested to hear that even with the facilities, even with that support, people have cycles and they need to move on and just recognizing that and and trying to affirm it you know affirm difference and affirm that that circumstances everything is 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 causes and conditions and just really realizing that the causes and conditions here are not the same as as what we experienced and and finding our way and again I come back to the not knowing we sort of you know we do this but we don't know how it's going to turn out and we've just got to really go with being being with this moment and then this one and then this one and then this one and with with that sense of of insecurity um, there's a saying in Tibetan Buddhism of tolerance of emptiness and you think why why tolerance of emptiness but it's tolerance of of not not knowing, you know, of there being this the sense of uh, we're we're going along, inventing things, you know, as we go along, not not out of some sort of set model that that um, we're trying to to bring, even as we can really appreciate what we've what we've been um, had the pr the privilege of experiencing in terms of Zen training. Anything else people want to add? I just want to add to what you're saying by quoting Yakasan, which is um, a, an important quote for me in my practice. And he was a great Chinese master, and he said, I'm, I'm getting this a little wrong, but uh, confused and uncertain, yet I go on. 
and that's in practice. <laughs> Well, maybe that's a, a good place to, to wrap up if there aren't any more, any more um, questions and we can move into sharing, sharing lunch together. Yeah. Okay. Thank you both. Thank, Thank you. you all. Thank you. Uh, I'll just make a brief announcement for the um, MR uh, Mountain people. Uh, if you would like to do... Um, interview uh, with Hogan, maybe we should meet at quarter, maybe quarter past uh, one would work. Uh, that's your service. Enough time yeah. for, for yeah. lunch. And then, so if you, would, if, if, if you do want to stay for that and do that, we'll meet in that back room over there. Okay. So perhaps um, we can have, while, while the, some people get the lunch out on the table, we can, we can have um, some others help with getting setting up the Zendo again.